0: See you guys this morning. Thanks for bringing the church into this building. Uh, if we haven't met, if you're new, my name is Jamie, one of the pastor elders of our church, responsible most Sundays for the preaching of God's word. Uh, this morning, in continuation of a sermon series that we began last week—an uh, Advent series. Uh, for those of you who may not be looped in, uh, the the word Advent. Uh, is derived from, is taken from the Latin word adventus, which means coming or arrival. This time of year, though always as a church for us, but with greater emphasis, uh, we focus our attention on the coming of Jesus into the world. The joyful celebration of his first coming and the hopeful celebration uh, or anticipation, I should say of his second coming. Merriment, uh, undoubtedly, it has its place this year, uh, as we know, We enjoy the many expressions of common grace that surround us, even the the lights that hang above us and the the trees that engulf us in this space this morning, all the while looking beyond those things, all the tinsel and the wrapping to the the greatest gift of all, the gift of God himself, a God uh, who is not only the author of this great story of redemption, but its most significant character and hero, having stepped into the pages of his own writing, which is wondrous. Emmanuel, God with us. And yet, longing too has its place this time of year, as, as many of us know, who have experienced what it is to live in this fallen, broken world. We look to the day when Jesus will return to usher in the great happily ever after that awaits his redeemed. It's a season to celebrate, yes and amen, but it's also a season to, to yearn. My prayer for us being, I mentioned this last week, in the days to come that an advent would occur, that God would break in on us with new surprises, that he would touch us with a renewing and restoring power, that he would awaken our hearts to a feeling sense of both deepest joy and deepest longing as we look back on the many promises fulfilled in his first coming and look forward to the many promises that await when he returns to set all things right. All the while recognizing, we'll see this this morning as we did last week, the beauty of his redemptive work even now as the people living in the already and not yet time in between. That's the hope of Advent, the living God breaking in and, and breaking through, awakening our hearts to the beauty and wonder of who he is and what he has done, what he is doing, what he will do for us in Christ Jesus, revealing to us the wonder of Christmas yet again. And so with that, I invite you to open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 12. That's the chapter we're going to open uh, every week of this series leading up to Christmas Eve. Matthew chapter 12, verse 40. We'll camp out there, but for a brief moment, because we're going to crash course our way through all of redemptive history as we did last week. The theme changes, uh, but the framing of it all is going to be very similar. Let me go and pray for us and we'll jump in to the scriptures this morning. God, thank you for the wonder of this time of year. There's a part of me, like C.S. Lewis, uh, that longs for uh, this sort of always Christmas as opposed to always winter, never Christmas. You can have it 12 months a year, and yet there's something wondrous about the anticipation building up to this season that we don't do it all year round. The songs that we sing the place that they have in this moment this time of year and the way that those songs warm our hearts as does the story of christmas it's a story that we tell year round as a church as we celebrate your birth jesus all the time not just this time of year and yet i'm grateful for uh, the unique sense of wonder that you stir in us as we as we sit with the christmas story in a unique way during the advent season and so I do pray as we sit, Spirit of God, with your inspired word in front of us, that you would break in, that you would break through, that you would awaken our hearts to the beauty and wonder of this God who redeems, who has entered into this story, who will return again, and who meets us in the space in between. Would you meet us now by your Spirit, Lord Jesus? Would you give me a feeling sense of the very things that I preach Pray that we would walk out of here encouraged, fortified, convicted, whatever you have for us, Lord. That you would move and work in our midst, in our lives, in our hearts. And that we would then take that out into the streets, into the marketplace. We would go tell it on the mountain that Jesus Christ is Lord. And that ultimately it would be all for your glory, for our joy and good. It's in his name, the name of Christ I pray. Amen. So as I mentioned in framing this last week, this series, theologians for uh, generations have spoken of Jesus' threefold office of prophet, priest, and king as it pertains to his messianic role in this great story of redemption, all of which these themes we, we find weaved throughout the scriptures. As stated in the Heidelberg Catechism, question 31, why is he called Christ, that is, anointed? And the answer Because he has been ordained by God the Father and anointed with the Holy Spirit to be our chief prophet and teacher who has fully revealed to us the secret counsel and will of God concerning our redemption, our only high priest who by the one sacrifice of his body has redeemed us and who continually intercedes for us before the Father, and our eternal king who governs us by his word and spirit and who defends and preserves us in the redemption obtained for us, Jesus the Messiah prophet, priest, and and king, all three of which we see in this, uh, the one and same passage in the Apostle John's writing to the seven churches. We looked at this last week, where John writes, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, here it is, the faithful witness, prophet, the firstborn of the dead, priest, and the ruler of the kings of earth. More explicitly, we see Jesus himself uh, in the gospel accounts give reference to these offices throughout his public ministry. In fact, as I mentioned last week, we see all three referenced in Matthew chapter 12. Again, we'll briefly open to this chapter of the Bible each week of this series leading up to Christmas Eve. In the case of prophet, as we saw last Sunday, verses uh, 38, 39, and skipping forward to 41 of Matthew chapter 12, we're told that, Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, that is Jesus, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Jesus himself declaring uh, declaring himself to be the prophet greater than, than Jonah, recognizing himself to be the fulfillment of the Old Testament office of prophet. The Christ-exalting past and present and future gifts under the tree, we looked at last week as it pertains to his exercising of his office of prophet. But notice what Jesus says right in the middle of that statement regarding Jonah. Matthew chapter 12, verse 40. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Jesus here referring to his impending death and burial, language and imagery associated not with his office of prophet, but rather with his office of priest as our sin-bearing sacrifice of atonement. As Jesus declares earlier in this very same chapter, Matthew chapter 12, verses 5 and 6, he says, Or have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. Again, temple imagery and language associated not with Jesus' office of prophet, but rather with his office of priest. Here, uh, declaring himself not only to be the prophet greater than Jonah, but to the the true and better priest and greater temple. In the unfolding story of redemptive history, a priest was to be a a mediator between holy God and sinful man, making intercession for God's people, offering sacrifices on their behalf, to pronouncing blessing upon the, the people. A benedictory role, you might say. The most famous benediction in the Old Testament, perhaps being the blessing of Aaron in Numbers chapter 6. Generally speaking, the role of a priest, 1 Samuel 2.18, was to minister before the Lord. The office of priest, going all the way back to the story of Creation. As Adam was the very first prophet, priest, and king. Last Sunday, we focused our attention on the office of prophet, this morning, on the office of priest. So, how is it that Adam was the first priest? After all, not only are the words prophet, priest, and king not explicitly found in the the first few chapters of the Genesis story, but in the beginning, there was no need for a mediator between holy God and sinful man, there was no sin. Going back to a passage we looked at last week. Genesis chapter 2 verses 15 through 17. We're told that the Lord God took the man. And put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man saying. You may surely eat of every tree of the garden. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Uh, Upon first glance, one might be inclined to think that working and keeping the garden was something of a gardening role. The scattering of seeds, the the watering of the land, the gathering of the harvest, which was undoubtedly part of Adam's responsibilities in that garden utopia of of Eden. And yet the the paired language of working and keeping there in Genesis chapter 2 verse 15 is used in the later writings of Moses to describe the priestly work of the Levites. If you skip ahead to Numbers chapter 3 verses 7 and 8, we're told they shall keep guard over him and over the whole congregation before the tent of meeting as they minister at the tabernacle. And they shall guard all the furnishings of the tent of meeting and keep guard over the people of Israel as they minister at the tabernacle. The words here... Uh, translated minister and guard, they're the same Hebrew words translated work and keep in the Genesis story. So that you have this painting of the picture of, of Eden not only as a garden, but as a sanctuary, a temple, the place where Adam was to serve the Lord, the place that Adam was to, to guard or keep safe from anything unholy. For though man had, had not yet sinned, the presence of evil was lurking in the form of a serpent. And yet, we come to learn that Adam failed as priest in allowing the serpent a presence in God's garden sanctuary. Another of the many evidences helping to explain why it was Adam and not Eve who was ultimately held responsible for the fall when sin entered the world. He should have preserved the holiness of Eden, of God's temple, God's sanctuary. But he failed in his role as priest, and sin and suffering thus entered the world, leaving our first parents unholy, unclean, stained by sin, and thus no longer able to abide in the sanctuary of God. Though they tried to cover their sin and shame, uh, hoping that uh, the fig leaves that surrounded them might be sufficient, but as we know, those those coverings weren't sufficient. God declaring in the wake of their sin that they had to leave. And yet not before giving them a glimmer of hope, Genesis 3.21, and the providing of animal skins to cover them in their sin and and shame. A foreshadowing of the work of redemption that God would someday bring about, those animal skins, the very first blood sacrifice in all of redemptive history. This story is really cool, the story of the Bible. Here you have the shedding of blood that they might be clothed, their shame covered. You see the gospel there? Cast out of the garden, yet not without God's promise of redemption, the hope and promise of a rescuer, a true and better priest to succeed where Adam failed, a Messiah. As we talked about last week, the word Messiah meaning anointed one. The priests in the biblical story, like prophets, were anointed in their roles, one example being the consecration of Aaron and his sons which we find in Leviticus chapter 8 verses 5 through 12 where we're told that Moses said to the congregation this is the thing that the Lord has commanded to be done and Moses brought Aaron and his sons and washed them with water and he put the coat on him and tied the sash around his waist and clothed him with the robe and put the ephod on him and "'tied the skillfully woven band of the ephod around him, "'binding it to him with the band. "'And he placed the breastpiece on him. "'And in the breastpiece he put the urim and the tumim. "'And he set the turban on his head. "'And on the turban in front, he set the golden plate, "'the holy crown, as the Lord commanded Moses. "'Then Moses took the anointing oil "'and anointed the tabernacle and all that was in it "'and consecrated them. "'And he sprinkled some of it on the altar seven times.' And anointed the altar and all its utensils and the basin and its stand to consecrate them. And he poured some of the oil, the anointing oil, that is, on Aaron's head and anointed him to consecrate him. Right, the priests of the Old Testament were anointed. Or in the lowercase sense of the term, they were Messiah. First priest outside the garden explicitly stated as such in scripture being Melchizedek. Though both Noah and Abraham, uh, Scripture tells us, built altars where they worshipped, perhaps implying something of a priestly role themselves in redemptive history. Not to mention Job, who acted as a priest for his family, offering burnt offerings in the consecration of his children. The Lord, years later, in the, the wake of the Exodus, declaring through Moses to Israel, Exodus chapter 19, verses 4 through 6, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on angels' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me, here it is, a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. The Levitical priesthood officially uh, was eventually established for Israel with the anointing of Moses' brother Aaron and his sons, the establishment of the tabernacle and temple, the sacrificial system, the day of atonement. And yet all of God's people were to function as a a priesthood in the sense that they were to be set apart as holy and consecrated to God. Later in the days of Samuel, we're told that a man of God came to Eli the, the priest with a prophecy that his two wicked sons would die on the same day. Eli having failed to discipline them, the two having failed to walk in the ways of the Lord. And yet included in that very same prophecy to Eli are these words. 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 35. This is God speaking. And I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who shall do according to what is in my heart and in my mind. And I will build him a sure house, and he shall go in and out before my anointed forever. Words that, that find their more immediate fulfillment in the person of Samuel, though too pointing forward in redemptive history to a true and better priest. Right? As we know, God, God raised up many priests throughout the unfolding story of the Old Testament. Men like Aaron and Elazar, Eli. And Zadok, who offered sacrifice upon sacrifice for sin, along with innumerable words of intercession for God's people. And yet none of them could bring about true and lasting redemption. None of their thousands upon thousands upon thousands of sacrifices able to take away sins. The author of Hebrews tells us, and we're going to camp out in that book a good bit this morning. Chapter 10, verse 11. Every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. None of the priests of old, the second Adam, leaving God's people longing for something better. The faithful priest, 1 Samuel 2.35, whom God would raise up for himself. That is, until Christ came in the humble trappings of a smelly stable. For unto us is born a priest, the true and better priest. He who, like the priests of old, would receive his own anointing. Luke chapter 4, verse 18. Jesus says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. The anointing of the true and faithful priest, which is not to say that Jesus officiated temple sacrifices nor that he entered the Holy of Holies of the earthly Jerusalem temple. He was not from the tribe of Levi, but the tribe of Judah, meaning that he was not considered a qualified priestly descendant of Aaron. And yet, what do we see in the gospel accounts? We see Jesus take on the role of a priest throughout his public ministry before we ever even get to his sacrificial death. For one, in succeeding where Adam failed in guarding God's garden sanctuary, in this case, the temple, in his cleansing of the temple, which had become a den of robbers. Jesus restoring it to its proper function as a house of prayer. Not to mention his declaring a people's sins to be forgiven. Two the many healings of the leprous and unclean. Those who had been sent outside the camp, so to speak. Jesus restoring them to the covenant community and the temple worship from which they had been outcast. More broadly, before we ever reached the cross, all of his lifelong experiences of temptation and suffering preparing him to sympathize with our weaknesses and help us when tempted. Two, the entirety of his Life of perfect obedience, preparing him to be the sinless pri- priestly sacrifice that we need. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 17 and 18. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. The entirety of of Jesus' life, we think of his death as a priestly sacrifice. Yes, the entirety of his life was one of priestly preparation and service, setting the stage for his priestly death. As we know that from the cradle to the cross, the story of Christmas is that Jesus was born to die. In his death, too, exercising his office of priest, the cross itself, a place of sacrifice, an altar where Jesus would atone for our sin that we might be made clean as both the offerer and the offering. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 4, For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Just a few verses earlier, chapter 9, verse 26, But as it is, he, Jesus, has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. The once for all sacrifice for sin, who needed not, like the priests of old, to offer sacrifices for his own sins, this true and better priest, the sinless son of God. Hebrews chapter seven, verses 26 and 27. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need like those high priests To offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people. Since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. On the other side of his death, his resurrection. The empty tomb, proclaiming the sufficiency of his priestly sacrifice. His ascension to heaven on the other side of the resurrection. The entrance into the true holy of holies. Hebrews chapter 9 verses 11 and 12. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, tabernacle, temple, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Or just a few chapters earlier, Hebrews chapter 6, verses 19 and 20. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Going back to the Genesis story, when Adam and Eve were were cast out of the garden sanctuary of Eden, a cherubim was placed with a flaming sword in hand to keep them out. In the book of Exodus, when the veil of the tabernacle was created, cherubim were embroidered on it as a reminder that the Israelites couldn't enter in because of their sin. The Holy of Holies being the part of the tabernacle and temple that only the high priest could enter. And only once a year on the Day of Atonement. With bells attached. So that should he die, they would hear the bells stop ringing and could drag him out without going in and dying themselves this God, a holy God. When Jesus died on the cross, the veil that separated the holy place from the holy of holies, as the gospel accounts tell us, was torn from top to bottom, the cherubim taken away. Jesus having entered into the true holy of holies as our perfect high priest, providing us with a way into God's presence and blessing. Seated at the Father's right hand, This is a critical detail of his priestly work. Listen to how the author of Hebrews says it in chapter 10, verses 11 through 13. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. There were no chairs in the tabernacle or temple of God because the priest's work was never done. There's always another sacrifice to be made, the blood of more bulls and goats to be shed. Having ascended, Jesus sat down at the Father's right hand, a dramatic and glorious, visible demonstration of what he had proclaimed on the cross. It is finished. His sacrifice sufficient, his priesthood eternal. He who will someday return to set all things right, exercising his office of priest yet again and bringing us into the final and forever sanctuary of God's presence, never to be banished again. Right? This too, part of the, the story of Advent, story of Christmas, the new and glorious morn of the second coming of Jesus. Which leaves us with a question this morning, similar to last week. Namely, what about now? I mean, last week we considered how it is that that Jesus even now is exercising his office of prophet. But what about his office of priest? I mean, what what are those gifts under the tree, so to speak? Well, for one, Jesus is our advocate with the Father. Our great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for us. First John chapter 2, verse 1. My little children, John writes, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Or as Paul writes in Romans chapter 8, verse 34, Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised. Who is at the right hand of God. Who indeed is interceding for us. Coming back to the book of Hebrews, chapter 7, verses 23 through 25. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented from death by continuing in office. But he, Jesus, holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. Meaning that we need not fear when we sin as we seek by God's grace to walk in spirit-empowered, sin-killing obedience. That we need not despair. Trusting that Jesus' presence at the Father's right hand is evidence that we have peace with God and are safe in Him. Gavin Ortland, in his article, The, the Voice of His Blood, He writes, the doctrine of Christ's intercession provides a vantage point by which to see how the grace of God meets particular sins at particular points in time. It doesn't, this grace, he says, merely cover my life as a whole, leaving the details to work out on their own, though it does cover our lives as a whole. But he says, Christ meets us again and again in our particular moments of lust, resentment, fear, negligence coldness and says father forgive them for the sake of my blood it's not to say that Jesus's intercession for us is the completion of atonement as if Christ didn't accomplish that work at Calvary but rather that Jesus's intercession for us is the application of atonement meaning the continual applying of the benefits of his finished work at Calvary That as we sing often in Jesus, we have a strong and perfect plea before the throne of God above. Our advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ. More than that, one who continually prays for us. As the word intercede in the verses we just saw is not restricted to acting as an advocate, but too includes in the original language the, the making of requests to another. Meaning that Jesus as priest continually petitions the Father to give us what we need on this rugged journey to glory. In the words of one writer, it's as if at the atonement, Christ won the right to a treasure chest of jewels kept by the Father. The Father then joyfully gives these jewels to Christ's people as and when he is asked. As Louis Burkhoff writes in his systematic theology, it is a consoling thought that Christ is praying for us even when we are negligent in our prayer, in our prayer life. That he is presenting to the Father those spiritual needs which were not present to our minds and which we often neglect to include in our prayers. And that he prays for our protection against the dangers of which we are not even conscious and against the enemies which threaten us, though we do not notice it. He is praying that our faith may not cease and that we may come out victoriously in the end. In the words of Robert Murray McShane, I wish his name was my name. He says, if I could hear Christ praying for me in the next room, I would not fear a million enemies. Yet distance makes no difference. He is praying for me. Thirdly, in the exercising of his office of priest, Jesus gives us the mercy and grace we need as one who sympathizes with our weaknesses. Jesus Christ is the ascended high priest of heaven through whom we have access to the mercy and grace we need as we navigate the difficulties of the journey before us on our way to glory. And lastly, and this is wondrous to consider, in the exercising of his office of priest, Jesus leads us in worship, taking on something of the role of the Levitical priests of old who assisted in the song of Israel. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. That is why he, Jesus, is not ashamed to call them the redeemed brothers, saying, I will tell of your name, Father, to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. The author of Hebrews elsewhere, chapter 8, verse 2, referring to Jesus as a minister in the holy places. That, That word minister literally meaning liturgist meaning that not only does Jesus bring us into the presence of of God in a way that not even the most glorious of liturgies ever could, but two that Jesus leads the saints and angels in heaven in worship so that when we gather like this every Lord's Day, we're joining in a song that's already being sung, surrounded by the hosts of heaven and God's redeemed as we await the day when, when we will join them in glory. What we need is not the the blood of more bulls and goats, more sacrifices laid out on more altars, whatever they may look like. What we need this Christmas, what we've been given is a priest, Jesus, the true priest, the once for all sacrifice for sin through whom we can draw near to God. Coming back to Question 31 of the Heidelberg Catechism. Why is he called Christ that is anointed? Because he has been ordained by God the Father and anointed with the Holy Spirit to be our chief prophet and teacher who has fully revealed to us the secret counsel and will of God concerning our redemption. Our only high priest who by the one sacrifice of his body has redeemed us and who continually intercedes for us before the Father and our eternal king who governs us by his word and spirit And who defends and preserves us in the redemption obtained for us. Why is he called Christ that is anointed? That's question 31 of the catechism. Question 32. Why are you called a Christian? And the answer there. Because I am a member of Christ by faith and thus share in his anointing. So that I may as prophet confess his name. As priest present myself a living sacrifice of thankfulness to him. And as king, fight with a free and good conscience against sin and the devil in this life. And hereafter, reign with him eternally over all creatures. That as believers, we've we've been anointed to present ourselves as living sacrifices of gratitude to Jesus. Coming back to the book of Hebrews, chapter 13, verses 15 and 16. Through him then, through Christ, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and share what you have for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Or perhaps more famously, Paul's writing in Romans 12 verses 1 and 2. as Jesus, our high priest, has made atonement for our sin through the sacrifice of himself. Rather, our sacrifices, those of gratitude and praise, is an outworking of the redemption that's ours in him. And thus, you and I functioning as the kingdom of priests that God intended his people to be, in Christ, set apart as holy and consecrated to him. As Peter writes, 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. Here it is. To be a holy priesthood. To offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Or Revelation chapter 1, verses 5 and 6 to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. A kingdom of priests to our God. This made possible because of Jesus, the true and better priest who loved us and gave himself for us and even now pleads for and prays for us and invites us to confidently draw near to his throne of grace. Thanks for listening. If you have any questions about this message, visit us at crosspointptc.com. There you can contact us, find further resources, and directions to our gatherings. That's C-R-O-S-S-P-O-I-N-T-E, ptc.com.